Hello, and welcome to Being Boss, a podcast for creative entrepreneurs. I'm Emily Thompson. And I'm Kathleen Shannon. I'm Paul. I'm Jason. We're Being and Boss. We're being Boss. <laughs> Almost. Hey guys, today we're talking to Paul Jarvis and Jason Zook. Both of them are incredibly generous with their gifts of knowledge. And so we're just here talking about building businesses and making it work. We mention a lot of resources in today's episode. So be sure to check out our show notes at beingboss.club so that you can click through and see everything that we're talking about. So just the other day, I was doing some of the end of the month admin that you've got to do as a creative entrepreneur. And I noticed on my FreshBooks dashboard that I was just $1,000 shy of hitting my monthly goal. And you guys, it got me in gear. With the click of a button, I sent out some invoices, I got paid within hours, and I met my goals. So FreshBooks Cloud Accounting not only makes getting paid easier... It's going to help you reach your goals by giving you the status of your business at a glance. Try FreshBooks Cloud Accounting for free by going to freshbooks.com slash beingboss and enter beingboss in the how did you hear about us section. Hey, boyfriends. Hey, girlfriends. Boss girlfriends. (laughs) With a Z, obviously, on the end. Obviously. Obviously. So good to see you guys. I feel like we haven't been in the same Zoom room together in quite a moment. At least two weeks. Has it been only two weeks? Yeah, I think it's been two weeks. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Like, we had a casual... We had a casual get together and I was like, we need to stop talking and save it for the (laughs) podcast. Before we go any further at all, Emily. Yes. How's the Moroccan poof? Because I looked at those and almost bought one, and I need to know if it's worth it. I love my Moroccan poof, for sure. Okay. Where'd you get it from? Um, David's grandmother got it, or David's mother, actually, not grandmother, got it for me for my birthday last year. So I have no idea. Is that no an idea. Etsy store I can find? Right. David's grandmother? <laughs> David's grandmother. Perhaps yeah. .etsy.com. Um, I can yeah. ask her where she got it. She's here visiting. Okay. I will. Okay. Just we'll curious. I was looking at them. That's very, uh, for everybody listening, it's going to be great because they're going to totally mm-hmm. give value out of that. Yeah. Yes, for sure. Let's talk about this digital detox, Jason. Mm, one of my favorite things that I do these days, which is taking 30 days off of social media. Um, I can't remember exactly where this stemmed from, but I think Paul and I talked about it in the first season of Visible Office Hours of just like, you know, feeling the weight of negativity that you get from scrolling through Facebook or, you know, someone yelling at you on Twitter about something and you're just like, I didn't want to see this first thing when I woke up or whatever. Uh, and so really it just stemmed from what if I just took a break? Well, we started with Super Jurassic. We're like, we're just going to quit everything. And I'm like, eh, okay, reel back a little bit. What if I just took a break for 30 days? And so in October 2014, I took my first social media detox, everything, delete all the apps off the phone, don't log into anything. And it was super difficult for the first two weeks. Like I felt like a crack addict. Like I would pick up my phone while I was driving, swipe it open. My thumb would go to where the Facebook icon was and there was nothing there. And like that's when you realize, honestly, like you've built an addictive habit. And I was really like happy to break that habit. And so fast forward now three or four years, however many years that is uh, from then, I've done six of these. So I've basically taken half of a year off of social media in this time. And it is 
Every single time I do it, the best thing that I do for my mental clarity, for getting things like in order in my business with all these things I have going on, and also just gives me time to like enjoy, like look up and enjoy everything and really to go like, why am I doing all of this stuff? You know, like, why do I sit on the computer all day? What am I building? And if it's not to have more time to do the looking up and the doing things, then what's it all for? So yeah, it's really great. And from this last one, um, I actually came back and decided to unfollow everybody that I followed on Twitter to see if my, cause that's really been my like, my last remaining thing. I quit Facebook last year and now it's been Twitter is, you know, with all this fucking Trump stuff, like I just don't want to see it at all. And I try and unfollow anybody who talks about that, but still someone will like something that someone else I'm not even connected to. And now I get to see that and it just affects me and I don't want it to affect me. So that's my latest thing is now for the next two months. I'm unfollowing everyone on Twitter and just kind of keeping a journal of what that's like and sharing what the experience is. I can tell you, spoiler alert, I'm second day in. I will start following people again because I miss certain people 100%. Paul Jarvis is one of them. Like 100%. I'm like, I I love those tweets. And he never does any of the stupid stuff that I get mad at. Um, but friends like Jeff Sheldon from Ugmonk, like he finds cool things. I want to find those cool things. But I'm going to be super selective when I come back. Um, and just try and be way more intentional with it. So yeah, social media detoxes, I love them and very like awesome side effect. That's the most highly trafficked article on my site, bringing over a hundred thousand people a year to my site when I did that the first time and wrote about it. So these are powerful things people are looking for. Love. I love the idea of unfollowing everybody. I recently went through a little bit of an Instagram detox. Not the same thing. I basically took off for the whole week that I went on vacation with my family to the beach. I maybe checked a little bit, but I feel like I got really good at being practicing moderation with it. I didn't fall into any rabbit holes. I maybe looked at it for 15 minutes one day. I didn't braid myself about it. It's kind of like going on a diet, right? Yeah, like it was just absolutely. no big deal. I was 90% awesome not looking at it. So one of the things, though, that I decided to do from that was unfollow most business accounts. And I've told Emily about this before. I may have even shared this on the podcast that between being boss, my personal Instagram account, and braid creative – I was following a lot of people who also had three businesses or personal account and business account. And so I was following some people up to nine times <laughs> and it was just getting to be a little bit too much. And I do enjoy scrolling Instagram. And so I just started unfollowing a lot of people. If you notice that I unfollowed you, dear listener, I'm probably still following you from Braid or Being <laughs> Boss. And it's really, I felt bad because it's not personal. It's just that I cannot look at anyone else selling anything else for a while. It was just yeah. starting to feel, I think whenever people feel like they're working in a saturated market, it's because they're following a whole bunch of people who are selling a whole bunch of things when in reality, maybe the market isn't as saturated as you've built it up to be in your not social maybe. media feed. Not maybe. It's just like, not. Yeah. It's just in the bubble that we live in that you follow these people. And that, that's a, that's a really good point. Like I, you, those comparison traps are what you fall into, right? Like you see this person, they're doing this great thing, they're doing this awesome thing, and you immediately compare yourself to them. And that was really like the impetus for my first detox was an article that Paul shared with me by Lauren Bacon. I still remember her name because her last name's Bacon. That's really easy to remember. And she wrote about this idea of comparison traps that like you look at that and then all of a sudden you see someone's winning and you're like, why am I not winning? You know, and where am I in my journey of that? Like, I shouldn't even compare myself. It's not a fair time for me to do that. Or even if it is, it then just makes you feel negative about it instead of like a positive motivation. So yeah, I think removing that stuff. And, and the other thing, I mean, this is the first 
or like third day for me being in this Twitter unfollowing thing, I, I had those hurt feelings things as well. And I was like, man, I'm going to hurt people's feelings, especially for me. I reassure people like way back in 2009 or 2008, I've been following those people. And so we have that. That's like our last remaining connection. And I feel bad. But then at the same time, I'm like, listen, bro, I haven't followed everybody. <laughs> so it's not you. Like I, I haven't followed everybody. So don't feel bad about it, which was a nice, easy out for me. Um, but I do think that there's just such a weird thing on the internet and in social media of like, Listen, if I stopped calling you or text messaging you, you wouldn't be hurt. You just know, like, I'm busy. I'm doing things. But if I unfollow you on social media, I must hate you or you're the worst person ever. And it's just a weird place. And so I, I want to get out of those things. Like, I want to use these platforms the way I want to use them. And I don't want any stigmas or, like, cultural things to affect that. Agreed. I, um about a year and a half ago, dropped my phone at the beginning of December and just, like, smashed the shit out of it. Like, would not work at all. It was awful-ish, except for the next month because I wanted to go to the Apple store and I would be going around Christmas and I was like, you know what? I could be without a phone for three weeks. It'll be fine. Those are the most glorious three weeks of my life in the past 10 years, for sure, is was not having a phone. And though I do have my phone back, I keep dropping it and smashing it. And this is where I find that like, I don't need to have this. If I'm dropping and smashing a like several hundred dollar phone and I don't care. In fact, like it actually makes me kind of happy because I hate the thing anyway, then you probably have some bad attachments to this device that you're carrying around and all the things that it makes you do. The only thing that I feel the most attached to, because I suck at answering text messages, I'm never going to call you back. I never have my ringer on nor is it on vibrate like is this i just pick this up to scroll instagram occasionally if it weren't for instagram i would be a no cell phone user that's who i would be like you'd have a landline no i would just have a david (laughs) he can have his cell phone because he likes it (laughs) you could have that cool light phone i think that's what it's called i don't remember what the url is but it's like a really beautiful minimal yeah it's just the lightphone.com and it's like this really well-designed like simple overpriced for what it is and all it does is just make calls and i think it holds like nine numbers in it or something uh but a couple people have sent that to me over time they're like i feel like you'd be the guy that would use this i'm like the minimalist in me is like i don't need a second phone but like they I love just well-designed things is like, I kind of want this thing. You know, like I, I can't decide which way I want to go. this thing. This is magnificent. Yeah. It kind of looks like a little remote control almost, except yeah. apparently it's a phone. This is magnificent. And this is totally what I feel like I need because I am so yeah. tired of being connected to everything and everyone at all times. Like yeah. I want to walk outside and go do things and not give a shit who's posting what or who needs to get a hold of me, which drives my mother crazy for sure. But um, but I'm around. I'll get with you if you need me. You just shoot me an email or something. I also like testing all these assumptions, though, too, right? Like, just real quick, sorry to cut you off, Kathleen, but, but like, does this impact my business? And that was really the, like, the thing for me from the beginning. It was like, well, social media, like, yeah, you can't judge the ROI, but you're there and you're branding and you're interacting. Like, I've made more money since detaching myself from being on social media all the time than I did before when I was on it every single day trying to do something. And it's because you get all that mental clarity back. It's because you have all the extra time to actually talk to customers, not in a place where they're talking to all these other people, but like in an inbox or on a call. Oh my gosh, mind blowing. 
and to really feel like you're making direct connections, you're making progress, you're doing things that have an impact on the business that don't just have an impact on the brand, which let's be honest, if we're like a, you know, online entrepreneur, online business owner, digital professional, whatever you want to call yourself, it really doesn't matter that much. You just think it does because everyone else is doing it. And what matters is doing all the things that everyone else isn't doing. Ooh, yep. Amen to that. So a couple of points that I wanted to make. One is completely random. I once heard that you drop things more, Emily, whenever you're on your period. (laughs) Paul, can you confirm this? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And then two, I like that idea of unfollowing everybody and then refollowing because then you have to remember who you like to follow. It wasn't like you have to make that decision of cutting. It's making the decision of adding back. And so this is actually something I love doing whenever I'm writing copy, like for my website, for example, is to not even look at what I currently have. But if I just had to rewrite and the most like the 25% of most important things I remember and I'll write it and go oh yeah that was already on the website and if I if I wrote it better the first time I'll copy and paste but otherwise I like doing things from scratch and creating things from scratch whether that's my Instagram following or my website content or a blog post or whatever it might be versus kind of whittling it down from where it was. Paul. Yes. What are you up to? Did you go on a detox this summer? Um, I guess I'm on one now. Uh, for... <laughs> Aside from talking to us. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, that's, this isn't social that media. Count. Yeah. So I haven't had Twitter. So I deleted Twitter off of my phone probably about a year ago. And I don't, like, I don't miss it. The only reason I have Instagram on my phone is you can't like, Unless you use it on a phone, you can't. Like, you can't. You're not using anything. it. Yeah. So yeah, I don't have Instagram on my phone right now either because I don't really care about Instagram. You're on, you were well, you were on a writing detox, but I think you're off of a writing detox. Well, I'm gonna. I'm co-hosting. How's <laughs> that, Paul? Yeah. So I'm still not writing my newsletter because I'm just trying to like get the book that I'm writing right now finished, and that's kind of like. That's my focus. So everything else is not as important as that. So things like social media, I just don't like, I don't care about when I don't have much to do. So when I do have a lot to do, yeah, I just don't care. So I love that you're doing your writing detox so you can focus on writing. That's fantastic. (laughs) Um, But I like that both of you basically are talking about little things that you can do to find more focus on what it is that you're actually trying to accomplish, which I think is so important whenever everything is notifying you all day long of all these little things to look at to look at the other day I saw something on my calendar pop up about how it's recycling day or the next day is recycling day and I went and told David I was like you know kid needs to put the recycling out because that's her job and it's fantastic and he was like oh well how did you say that I was like I got a notification on my calendar he's like well I got an email about it and I just like all these little things that just pop into your face all day long from everything, I find extremely overwhelming. I took Facebook off my phone years ago, Twitter off my phone maybe a year ago. Instagram is a thing that I keep up. But like I said a minute ago, I don't have notifications for anything. I don't even keep my ringer or my vibrate on. I don't even know if it works. I don't think I've ever used it. Um, I will be notified of things whenever I pick up my phone and choose to look at things. And I think that whenever you can 
have that much self-control to find focus in those ways, you're able to produce so much more. So Paul, you're writing a book. Jason, what are you working on? Nothing. I'm just screwing around. You know? <laughs> uh, I have, I'm completely like overhauling tea tree and our entire um, marketing customer information, knowledge base, onboarding. Uh, I have a 27 email sequence that I'm working on, which sounds ridiculous, but it's going to be, I think, probably one of the best and most helpful things we do for our customers, which I'm really excited about. Um, we're redoing Spruce Metrics entirely again, which is crazy because it's now the third time, but it needs it. So we're doing that. Uh, yeah. And then just keeping up with all the other things, working with Buyer Future and Caroline, my wife and I are redoing our entire workflows of like all this automation and personalization stuff that we're kind of getting into, um, which I keep, Paul and I have talked about for years. And it's funny, every time we've talked about it, the conversations ended like this, eh, but it's too much work. Let's not do it. We're like, okay, yeah, let's not do it. Let's just keep doing things. But we finally decided like, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. I want to see if I can create more time based on all the existing content things. So I would say that I'm doing that, but it's mostly Caroline because she's smarter than me and she can figure it all out. And I'm just going like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, I need to write that email. Okay. I can do that. Like, that's what I'll do. Right. So yeah. So you're focusing on lots of things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, have some and it's... logistical questions here. Yeah. You got married. I did. She said she statement. said yes. I That's went to Zales, fact. everybody. That's a joke for like thirty percent of your audience will get that. <laughs> okay, so you got married and you combined your futures. Yes. So how is that blending the personal with the professional? It's good. I mean, we, it's been interesting. So like my journey with Caroline was I hired her to work for me when I was doing Iria Shirt back in 2010, I think 2011. And then Iria Shirt went away in 2013. So she started her own business, which eventually became Made Vibrant. And then she was, you know, we kind of like this weaving back and forth motion. Um, and then now we've kind of come back together and buy our future was just supposed to be a one-time thing. So buy my future, which Kathleen, you're a part of. Paul right. is And remind honorarily. our listeners what that is for our listeners who are not familiar with our boss boyfriends and what you guys do. Sure. So it is basically like the one-time fee to get everything I've ever created, everything I ever will create. It was $1,000 in 2015. It grew to 1500 And now having my wife involved is 2000 And it's all of our stuff together. So it's like 34 courses and guides and workshops, software products. There's like six of those. And you never pay again for anything else. And it's like just the best like BOGO of all time. And Every single time I do it, I'm trying to get more out of Paul. So it's like by our future asterisks with Paul Jarvis. And eventually <laughs> it's going to be Paul. Like there'll be some type of like marriage that happens. Like I don't know how that works, but we're moving um, to but, Utah. Yeah, exactly. Like it's just a big commune. Um, no, we're moving to Canada, Paul. Like we're going to come to you, obviously. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it's it's been it's we're been very all coming to Canada. <laughs> yes, that's exactly. why I have acres of land for my American friends, <laughs> for all of his wives and husbands. <laughs> I could just see you stacking like tiny homes, like just all around, and then like three high. You just have like yeah, like those crate crate home oh, situations. Yes, mm-hmm. that'd be fun. Uh, but yeah, so and logistically, we'll combine all of our futures. Yes. See, this is, I'm, we're getting, this is going to be great. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was just supposed to be a one-time thing this year. And then when we did it, we were like, this makes a lot of sense. Like maybe we should bring our businesses back together in some degree because, you know, we work alongside each other all day long. She's six feet away from me at the moment. And it, we all 
all of our stuff intertwines at some point. So why not actually make that happen? And, and it's been amazing. I mean, it just becomes like the linchpin to us online, which we can attract people to that thing. And of course we can sell our individual items, but, uh, yeah, it's just, it's been great. We really, uh, we really liked it. And so is the community. The community's really loved too, like the added bonus and now Caroline's perspective as well. Right. So technical question. I bought your future before it was our future. So do I also have Caroline's future now? You're already upgraded, my lady. I'm upgraded. Second question, what if you guys get a divorce? Okay, first of all. I mean, I'm not all, trying to be a bummer. First of all, <laughs> I believe 60, in you. 60% and- <laughs> of marriages fail. So there's no statistics that say that. No. Uh, I mean, you know, listen, we'll figure that out when it comes to it. We haven't even really thought about it. I mean, at the end of like this journey of whatever that looks like online like we could separate things if we had to but it's not gonna happen we're gonna be those that couple that is in the 40 percent. i worry. mean i believe it right yeah. or if there's any reason to help hold you guys together is the fact that it's your business. livelihood is so tied together what a pain in the ass that would be listen money keeps all relationships together we all know yes that. <laughs> I didn't mean to ask a shitty no, question. No, no, it's fine. We have it in our terms and conditions page anyway. Also, if I die, like that is a question I knew people were going to ask too. So, right. Yeah. Okay. What happens yeah. if you die? Um, I guess they're sad. just sh- they're, well, they're, they're just buying- shit out of luck. Yeah, I have a well, Nordic funeral. But now funeral, they have Caroline's future. Actually, you getting married works well. Right. If you yeah. die, there's someone to pick up the slack. There you go. Yeah, really, it's just like. You know, you get everything, but you get nothing else because the person who created those things is dead. So maybe sorry. if you die, we get Paul. Paul, <laughs> how do you feel? Sure. I think yes. I think you sorry. have to that's sign over your life means. insurance to Paul, though, if yeah, that's yeah, yeah. the case, right? Yeah. I think that's there already in there. It's like get first the to Caroline three first, then to Paul, then yeah. die, then I'll get that. <laughs> yeah. it'll, it'll assuage my sadness slightly. I'll drive up to the eulogy. I feel like that is that. a word that I never hear out loud, but I always read it. Assuage. Assuage. It's a good word. It is a good word. Yeah, it's good. There you go. Thank okay, you, Paul. So it Jason, is. You in, grade, Paul. in grade seven, a teacher told me that it wasn't a real word when I used <gasps> it in a book report. <gasps> yeah. Did you give her an F? <laughs> I, I think I called her some kind of expletive and then got sent to the principal's office. And now you drop that word as much now as possible. Now I drop it all the time because fuck You her. should call your book that and then mail it to her. Yeah. Yeah. That's what you should yeah. title your book. I love oh it. Oh, my God. Okay. So, Paul, you're working on a book. Can you tell us what it's about or is it still a secret? No, it's not a secret at all. It's called The Company of One. And it's basically about how businesses of any size can be, it can be more beneficial to them if they don't think of growth as we need to grow in all directions at all times exponentially. Where they can start to think, like bigger companies can start to think like smaller companies or smaller companies can get the benefits of being small businesses instead of trying to act like big businesses that most people and most consumers don't like anyways. So yeah, it's called Company of One, even though it isn't just for people who have like employee-less businesses, it's kind of for everybody, but that's the book. It doesn't come out for another like year and a half, so, but... So it's, when's that? January 2019? Is that what you're looking at? Uh, late 2018, hopefully. Okay. Yeah. Late 2018. Well, yes. our podcast is forever. So someone might be yes. listening to this and your book is out. Yes. In, <laughs> in which case, leave it a good review on <laughs> iTunes, Amazon, whatever. Right. Okay. So you're doing a lot of research for this book, right? 
it is my life right now is what is that what is that like are you just googling articles are you going to the library card catalog what's what's going down oh yeah the uh, the dewey decimal system is my best friend right now (laughs) but yeah so usually my writing is completely egotistical and 100 percent focused on me right like because that's the the easiest story to tell is your own which i don't even have a problem with that my newsletter is never going to change to be like research-based but for the book, I wanted to make it so that the strength of the arguments, like the strength of the arguments for people that are in my audience, they already understand where I'm coming from. They know my backstory. It's, it's easier to convince them or not convince them. I don't really care either way of the things that I have to say. But for a wider net, for casting a wider net, the people that are going to buy the book are also going to be people who have no idea who I am because I'm not that big of a deal, even though my mom said that I was in grade seven after I got that bad book review report thingy anyways so yeah i'm trying to i'm trying to add a lot of research to it to kind of back up my arguments and a lot of the research is kind of because business books are fucking boring sometimes like it's just they're just not that interesting like they'll start with one story to hook you in and then it's just facts and it's just like oh i don't care i know i feel like seth godin even once said most business books could be three pages yeah and then but, the 100 or 200 rest are just not Exactly. Whatever. So I'm trying to make my book more story-based. Like, there's obviously a very specific message in it, and there's very specific parts to each of it, but... Wait, are you making up stories? stories? Like, fables? No, oh, no. no. <laughs> I'm telling... So, so, like, I'm interviewing people, right? And I'm telling their story as as a way to show that the idea is valid, and then backing it up with, like, a paragraph of stats, but then, like, right back in the story. So stories are... Inter- and I mean, like, that's why Seth Godin is so good. Because he his books are storybooks for adults that are trying to run a business, and like his book, like people eat his books up because they're so good, because they're so interesting. Like our society, like as human beings, our DNA is story based. Like that's how we communicate information. That's how we've communicated information to each other since the beginning of communication as our species. So yeah, I think stories stories are important, and that's kind of what I'm I'm trying to make my book a bit more interesting than most other books in in the business world. What is the most surprising bit of research that you've come across so far? Oh, geez. Um, like, well, did right anything now, anything come up that you were like, "What? I had no idea." Yeah. So on a on a consumer brand, um, like on a scale where consumers ranked brands that they were aware of, Tom's ranked higher than Nike. Nike's advertising budget alone was in two thousand five three point two billion dollars for advertising and endorsements. Tom's is like a 600 and something million dollar company. So their entire business is worth less than Nike's advertising budget for a year. And they still rank higher for for younger people in terms of like brand like. And I think a lot of that also relates to the story. Like Tom's has a wicked story. Like it's one for one. Like a bunch of companies have copied that as a business model. And like woven into the way that Tom's works isn't just like buy these shoes, they've got a swoosh on them. It's like buy these shoes, they're helping put shoes on people in Argentina or helping restore, I think they've restored eyesight to something like half a million people because they sell glasses now as well. So I think that the the story aspect of it and the social aspect of it and the like voting with your wallet thing accounts a lot for brand like you can't buy that like obviously you can't buy that nike i guess spent like over three billion dollars on advertising and still for younger people are are were like 22 and tom's was or no nike was 25 and tom's was 22 
something like that. That's I don't know if the number's in front of me, but yeah. Good. So how are you feeling? I want to know how you're feeling getting traditionally traditionally published as independent Paul. Yeah, so I kind of built my reputation on indie publishing and self-publishing, and that was kind of fun. But I felt like, like for me, I like to experiment with things, and I like to try new things, and I like to kind of figure, like, my biggest thing is, like, I need to see how this works. Like, I was a kid who took apart every piece of electronics that I had, because I'm like, what's inside making this magic? And so I feel like, I, I feel like I didn't figure out self-publishing because I think that that's impossible to do, but I figured out enough of self-publishing to make a decent living off of it. And I still like writing books. Like I've always loved books. Books have been like the thing that have carried me through everything. So I felt like hmm, it'd be interesting to see what traditional publishing is like. And for no other reason than there's like, what would happen? Like, let's see what happens. Like, let's see what happens. Like, I talked to a couple people. I think I talked to you ladies as well. Like, how does that work? And then everybody was like, you need an agent. So I was like, okay, how do you get an agent? So I asked my mailing list, hey, does anybody know an agent? And so I talked to I talked to the agent that, that you ladies use. I talked to a couple other agents, and I found an agent. Then I was like, okay, now what? And then my agent was like, okay, you have to write a book proposal. So I did that. And then, like, she pitched it to publishers, and then I talked to a bunch of them, and then they bid on it, and then... I picked somebody. So it's just, it's interesting. Like it's slow going, but it's like, I don't mind the cadence because I have a lot of other stuff on the go. Like, even though I've scaled back a lot of things, there's still a lot in my life because I, I am a company of one, like I'm one person running my business. So like, there's a lot of, I'm being pulled in a different direction all the time. So it's kind of interesting to do that. And it's kind of interesting to give up control. Cause like I'm a control freak. And like, that's, that's like, that's why you start a business, right? Like if you cut all the bullshit, like you start a business cause you think you can do something better and you want to be in control of doing that better. And so in this, I'm like, okay, well, some of the control is with my agent. Some of the control is with my editor. Some of the control is with like the PR and marketing department of my publisher now. So I only have a little bit of that, but it's fun because I don't have to do as much of the nuts and bolts technical stuff. Like I've kind of over the last couple of years, I've kind of moved from being like just a technician to being like somebody who like does the the main part of the work. And then other people do the other parts. Like I don't have to worry about the typography. I am going to worry about the typography <laughs> because like I'm a designer. No comment. No comment. <laughs> Hot topic. <laughs> we know that you struggle with how to officially set up your business and incorporate.com is here to help you eliminate the guesswork of making your business legit they don't offer legal or financial advice but they are here to help you with all the paperwork and filings for you to set up an llc corporation or nonprofit. And they're offering our boss listeners a free toolkit that includes a business plan template, incorporation guide, and discounts to help you make it do. To get this guide, go to incorporate.com slash being boss. Okay, so I have a question. If you're hyper, if if it's an experiment to go from self-publishing, and I kind of think of self-publishing as in we all publish our own podcast. We're not a part of a podcast network. We publish our own articles, 
with our newsletter that we own. So we're publishing in a lot of different places and we're both trying out traditional publishing. So as an experiment, so I'm curious if you have some sort of hypothesis or objective going that route. Do you have a guess that you're trying to prove right or wrong? Yeah, so my guess is that, well, so there's there's two things. So the first is that it's really hard to get a traditional publishing deal unless you don't really need one. It's just like in the music business, you're not going to get a record deal until you kind of don't need a record deal. And related to that and tied to that is that those things, those those gatekeepers in these traditional ways are amplifiers. So I have an audience. You you ladies have an audience. Where the book where book publisher I think can help is t- bringing our reach beyond the people that we reach, as long as we do a good job of that, to more people. So if I do a really good job at getting pre-sales for the hardcover of my book, and it launches really well, then my publishing company is no doubt going to put more effort into promoting it and promoting me as an author. Whereas if there's like, wah, 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 not very many sales, I don't think a whole lot is going to happen, right? So I, I think that they're amplifiers, and so if you have zero, the amplification of zero is nothing still, right? So you have to start with a base. And like that's, I don't know about, about you ladies, but like that was the main conversation. Like my agent wanted to know how big my audience was. All the editors that I talked to at publishing houses wanted to know the reach that I had currently without their help. Because they can't, it's really difficult for them to promote when you're starting from, from zero. Yeah, it's like getting a loan. Like what's the collateral? Exactly. Yeah. You you need to show that you can make money or build an audience or do something yourself first. For sure. I remember at one point during the, the courting phases of publishers having a conversation with Kathleen where we were talking about at this point, we're not even selling our expertise. We're selling our following or we're selling our reach and what it is that we've created and not so much our content, though that's definitely a part of it. Like what we're able to write this book on is important, but it's really about what we've built in terms of the community and not even just the numbers, but the engagement. Like they wanted to know what the numbers were, but they wanted to know how good quality those numbers were were they engaging were they buying were they having conversations and doing things amongst themselves themselves and I remember that being just sort of a funny sort of mindset switch that Kathleen and I had to make where those conversations we went into them expecting to talk about what we've done and what we've created and you know the content we're sharing but the questions we were being asked was How big is your Instagram following? You know, tell us about this Facebook group. How many people are coming on your vacations? They loved those fucking vacations for sure. Um, And having people come and hang out with us in person. Um, And it was really fascinating and not something, I feel like not something that a lot of authors were having conversations about 10 years ago, but with the um, bombardment of social media and the internet and all of those things, um, that is one thing that has certainly shifted in the traditional publishing world is, is it's not just about content. It's what else you're bringing to the table. I have loved working with our publisher too, though, to bring some of our expertise of online business and non-traditional marketing to the table for them. And so looking at their marketing plan and seeing, oh, you're trying to get librarians on board. Is there something that we can do to help you there? Can we get a librarian on the podcast? And they're like, wait, What? We're like, well, yeah, why not? And so it's really fun kind of blending the two, like the traditional and non-traditional and kind of the 
you know, our naivety of like how this works to bring more innovation to their process, hopefully. Yeah. Paul, what's your what's your book budget? Three point two billion? <laughs> yes. It's, it's it's about what Nike spent. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Just wanted to make sure I, yeah. I could follow along and see the that, that book advance. <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> oh man. <laughs> It is, it's been Speaking such a of trip. book advance, you just bought a Porsche. Yeah, but or- I bought that before the book deal mm-hmm. even happened. So tell us about that. So for or a lot can, stuff- can we talk about it? Can we talk about the car you bought? Sure. It's pretty sweet. <laughs> it's a it's an amazing vehicle. So the reason that I bought it is because for the last couple of years I've wanted a luxury vehicle that was vegan, so no leather. And unfortunately, the, the mindset, the consumer mindset and the manufacturing mindset of car manufacturing is that leather equals quality and that leather equals luxury, even though leather is harder to maintain. Things like Alcantara or MB Tax or New Lux or whatever the names are, are just last longer. Even Tesla's Ultra White, when they first launched that, that's been one of the best selling and one of the most well-liked features of those vehicles is the the non-leather aspect of it. And now, I guess Elon Musk, I think at the probably about a week ago of recording this, announced that Tesla is going all vegan for their seating. So you can no longer get leather on anything but their steering wheel. Jason, if you're listening to this show on iTunes, Jason is fist pumping at that <laughs> awesome. as a new as a new convert. So that was kind of the the Wait, as a new vegan convert or Tesla convert? Vegan, vegan convert. both. Yeah. <laughs> well, almost yeah, well. Both. Yeah. Oh, Wait, you're vegan? Yep. Nice. Yeah. Listen, you hang around with Paul I for immediately years, miss and this butter when I say the word vegan. Yeah. <laughs> but there's good alternatives these days. True that. Nice. Which is probably why it's so much easier, I mean, nowadays, because so many more people are. Anyway, sorry. Paul, no, talk about your continue. Porsche. By the way, yeah. as a previous Porsche owner who got reprimanded when I was 24 and bought a Porsche, by the way, I literally walked up and was like, I want that Porsche. And the guy was like, if you can't say Porsche in two syllables, you're not allowed to own one. And I was like, oh, okay, so it is a pretentious car brand. Oh, okay, I got it. Okay, I just <laughs> so, want to make sure I know. Now that that's out of the way. Yeah, okay, good. Okay, so it's Porsche, not Porsche. 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 I still say Porsche because I think that's just ridiculous. Porsche. Yeah. What if we just said Porsche? Porsche. Porsche. <laughs> okay, so you drive a Porsche. Porsche. So yeah, Sexy. it's a fun, it's a fun car. Part actually, part of the the buying experience was that they send the the new owners to a racetrack, which is slightly up island, which is where they launched the new. Uh, the new Porsche Panamera S, I think it was. So my wife, Lisa, was like, well, this is like cars and driving fast is kind of your thing. She's like, I can just take pictures. I'm like, fuck no. They gave us two tickets to drive as fast as we possibly can around a track. And by like the second lap, because like one of us would sit passenger and one of us would drive. By the second lap, she's like, this is the best thing ever. Like just like redlining it all the way around the track. So, <laughs> but yeah. it's that. There, it's a nice like it's a nice vehicle. Like it's a really it's a really nice vehicle, and it's all vegan. And it's like it's literally like talking about research. I contacted not only every dealership of like luxury vehicles that exists in Canada, but I talked to like corporate headquarters in Canada for 
like probably 20 brands. I've talked to worldwide headquarters. I know more people's email addresses at Mercedes-Benz and at the Dahmer Group than most other people do because I talk to so many people. I'm like, just come on. Like, I want to, like, I don't understand why I want to give you my money for a nice car and you won't let me. Like, and sometimes it was just like one strip of let, like on the Mercedes-Benz AMG GLA, there's one, on the Alcantara sports wheel, there's one strip of leather at the top. I'm like, how about we just don't do that? Like, how, just ship it to me without it and I will get somebody to put it on. They're like, no, we can't do that. Porsche hand makes shit still. And they're such a small company that they're like, yeah, we could do that. So I emailed them and they're like, yeah, we can do that. I'm like, all right. Um, I don't like now it's time to play hard to get, right? <laughs> like now it's like, that's not even gonna work. I just won't work. You're like, and now here's my money yeah. <laughs> that I wanted to throw so, at you. Yeah, so it was a two year process. I wrote a couple articles about it just because of the like gobs and gobs of research. I, did. I felt like I was on 60 Minutes or something. Like the amount of research and digging that I did to be able to get this car. Did anyone ever lie to you? Were they ever like, yeah, it's vegan? And then a you couple, did some research and you were like, no, it's not. So I don't know in the U.S., but in Canada, it's against the law for car um, salespeople to lie if they know the answer is different than what they say. So yeah, they can act. It's a hundred percent different in Canada. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So they they will get fired, and there's possible like legal and criminal action that can be taken against them if they if they tell you something that they know is false. So no, they couldn't say that. Plus, I did more research than them. I know more about the vehicles that I was interested in, as in terms of just that aspect of like the materials, than any car um, salesperson that I spoke to. Because this was that like that was my job for two years. It's not the job of salespeople to know that. Like they had to talk to parts people. We had to talk to other people. So, yeah, no, nobody lied because I would have known. It's always a fun experience when you know more than a car salesman. Like I actually have a story about that, which I can tell you quickly. Yes. In 2010, uh, Nissan contacted me when I was doing the I Wear Your Shirt thing, and this is where I used to wear T-shirts for a living and represent companies on social media. And they were like, "Hey, we represent Nissan. We're like their." marketing company or whatever we want to send you this new car that's coming out but it won't be out for another year but we just want you to like make videos and talk about like we're just you know you're interesting this is interesting so they sent me this car and uh they were like you know whatever you want to do like just have fun obviously don't wreck it or whatever and i was like all right first thing i want to do is take it to a nissan dealership because none of them will know it exists and so literally i go to a dealership and i pull up and a guy walks up like classic car salesman like you see him coming up like oh i got a sale coming and whatever and then he looks at the car and he just like stops in his tracks and he's super confused and i'm like oh this is the <laughs> nissan juke have you not seen it it's a 1.6 liter turbo motorcycle inspired design it comes with a full leather interior seat seven like went through all the stats and the guy just sat there like dumbfounded and i was like okay bye and then just like backed out and peeled out of the parking lot <laughs> and it felt so great like it was like the best moment ever to be able to do that to a salesman uh and that was just like a fun random thing to like be able to know more than those jackasses who like come up to you and think they know everything ah it's wonderful <laughs> my car buying experience was a nightmare i was eight months pregnant and had like a head full of dreads, which just made people assume all sorts of different things about me from my hair to being pregnant to whatever. And Everyone God knows what you were wearing. Me, I, I was wearing <laughs> white overalls, and everyone wanted to stick me in a Honda CRV. <laughs> mm. And then whenever I went to the Mini Cooper dealership, they were like, let's go smaller. And I was like, sold. <laughs> yeah. 
Smart they're like you're cool this is who you should be with you're cool yeah i've had similar experience like i'm covered in tattoos and i look like a dirtbag so like but like walking into porsche like they what i liked about that experience was that they didn't care because i think they know that people that yeah. buy those cars can look like anything like it doesn't matter like nobody asked me like what I did, like the credit check only happened because it had to happen in the process. It wasn't like, can you really afford that car, young man? It's just and that's like, changed. Here's that's the definitely keys. changed. Oh, yeah. yeah for like sure. they yeah. handed me the keys and said, just take it for a day or two. Yeah. I'm like, all right. Done. Yeah. Burn out of the parking lot. Right. Sorry, we need new tires now. I'm glad that we can all bust through those little boundaries. Um, before Before we start wrapping this up, I want to talk to you guys about your latest season of Invisible Office Hours because you guys, I love how you guys are always experimenting with ways to make money and do cool things. I want to talk to you guys about how you decide to fund your latest season and how it all went down. And how it all went down wrong. How it all went down. Oh, no. Yeah. I just saw down. that email. Oh. Let's, let's first start by saying the episodes are great. It's a yeah. great season content-wise, wonderful, probably our best yet. We had a lot of fun recording the episodes. But each year, we've tried to monetize it differently. The We did the bundle of awesome, which was great. That made $42,000, which is insane. Uh, we did a little bundle with a course and something else, like some uh, pr- like private episodes. Uh, that made like 15000 bucks. We had a sponsored season. That made over $20,000. We launched a product that, uh, of course, books, which is actually in Buyer Future, still exists, uh, was purchased by a Buyer Future buyer, which is kind of cool. It's a little fun story. No one knows. And, you know, that made us like $40,000 total. So we've had like a really good track record of tens of thousands of dollars per season. And Paul and I came to this idea of doing this like leaderboard and like, let's have our audience because we get thousands of downloads, not tens of thousands, but thousands of downloads per episode. We're like, that's a good amount of people. Like maybe they'll support the show six seasons in three years, four years now. Um, let's put that to the test. And so we built this leaderboard that was kind of cool. And, uh, you know, we had our friend Zach who builds everything with us do it. And it really, really womp womped. You like mean it, people who love your free shit don't want to buy your stuff? They don't want to support it monetarily. Money. Yeah. They don't want to pledge money for nothing. Basically, <sighs> I don't mean I... to turn on our dear listeners, but this is <laughs> this is why artists can't make a living through well, patronage, right? Yeah. Like I think that that's the thing. Like patronage is very difficult. And maybe if our show started on patronage and we were 4 years into it, that would be different because there are a bunch of people who are killing with Patreon as a service and getting donations and those types of things. Um totally can work, but I think for us testing the assumption of like we have happy people, like they open our emails, let's see if they'll give us money. It brought in like, you know, $700 total and put us like $1500 in the hole. Uh and it's just it didn't make or break us, you know, obviously we're going to be fine, but it's just funny to look at it in the context of all the other seasons of like, hmm, plus 20,000, plus 40,000, plus 10,000, minus 1,200. Like, okay, we know the idea, idea that doesn't work, like that we clearly tested that assumption. Yeah, I think that part of it is that people don't, like people are paying for podcasts because because sponsors are paying for their attention. But not directly. So when I listen to a podcast, I don't think that this podcast costs me as a consumer or as a listener money. So us saying like, hey, do you guys want to directly support the show instead of having sponsors pay for the show? Why don't you guys do it? And I think that that was a, fl- that was a flawed assumption on, on our part because it's so weird like how, how that kind of like the idea of value works because like say 
somebody goes to do like a speaking gig and they get like five or 10 or 20 K, but they could put that same information in an article that nobody would pay that information for, or they could put that same information, like they could record that instead of going to do a speaking gig, put it on a podcast and maybe they get like $500 or a thousand dollars in sponsors. If they're lucky, if they have the listeners to support that. So it's just weird how we assign these arbitrary ideas of value on things and when we try to assign value on something where consumers or where uh, an audience or listeners think that there is less or little value not in the content but just in like the monetary number that they would assign to it it kind of like goes to shit a little bit which is what happened with us and i mean like I'm happy we did it. Like the episodes are so easy to listen to. There's no spot. There's no interruptions in any of the episodes. And there's a don't. lot of Danielle Laporte, which is even cooler. Exactly. Like, she, she has the best voice ever. So she introduces all the shows. Um, but yeah, like it just didn't work. But yeah, like it's not going to, it, it didn't break us. Like we're still doing a season seven. We're obviously not going to do that again. Specifically, <laughs> Like we learned yeah. I mean, you know, myself included, like I hear all those NPR fundraisers and I I donate like five bucks a month, but it's not, an, you know, it's not enough probably. And I can't donate to every single, you know, public thing that I consume, right? So I guess there is that, but it's just so frustrating to me that, I don't know, people are like, I love, I love your free stuff. And then it just crickets chirping whenever you ask them to support you financially. I think that it would bother me if people didn't support any aspect of my business, but I sell a lot of courses. (laughs) I sell a lot of software. Like all of the other things make good money, right? So in this one time, I feel like we got, like Jason and I got our positioning wrong. If we had done it in a different way, like when we asked our audience for money, when we sold a bundle, we made over $40,000. When we did this, it, it did like seven hundred dollars. So like it was it was the way that we positioned it that was flawed in logic, not the not the audience because they do support us in every other way. I think. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to just look at like online business as a whole, and you just know that your average subscriber, visitor, listener, whatever it is, they're not the ones who are going to pay the bills. It's the kind of the culmination of the people who really like you and are going to buy everything from you no matter what you do, and that they're going to offset the cost of all the people who maybe can't afford it. You know, like the single moms of the world, the the, the pregnant dreads, white overalls, trying to get a Mini Cooper. Like they're, they just... I'm just trying to get into a BMW, people. <laughs> yeah. I can't be buying your stuff online. Like I need, I got BMW money I got to save up. <laughs> uh, but I think there is just a like an evening out that you, you start to realize too, as you get further along in business where it's like, oh, well, I'm not going to get money from every subscriber. So I shouldn't expect that. And what I should do is just try and give as much value as possible where I can. You know, the interesting thing is we talk about this i think about you know we have thousands of listeners per episode well what if we had ten thousand listeners per episode would that have gone from 700 to seven thousand dollars you know what if we had we should we should test it out and see (laughs) we could let you know i guess the point that i really want to make because i don't want this to sound disparaging toward people who listen to podcasts and i don't want anyone listening to feel bad about themselves for if not list or for not supporting invisible office hours or anything else it's just that i think that a lot of people think that if you're popular you're going to be making a ton of money out of nowhere and that's just not the case. Like popularity does not convert to dollars. 
which is why you see so many YouTubers who are broke and quit doing it because exactly. views don't equal business or bank account. I have this conversation with Caroline, my wife, all the time of like, you're not running a business. You are not exchanging value for money. Does those views, all the vanity metrics, anything you have, like that's not a business. Unfortunately, people have told you that it can be, or you can see it working for the Casey Neistats of the world, but you're not that person. Unfortunately, you have to figure out a way to offset those things. And on the flip side, you know, you can have very small numbers, very small popularity, I'm putting that in air quotes, and be making bank. Yeah, so for sure. I think yeah. it's cool that you guys tested that out to see. Like, as your podcast grew, you thought, okay, this could be a way to monetize. And in fact, season one made the most. Was it season one that made the most? <laughs> it was season two, because season one, we were just like, what are we doing? Like, we don't yeah. even know if we're going to keep doing this. So, what is and it sounded, it sounded terrible, by the way. If you go back and listen to season one, it was so bad. Question, could you go back and, speaking of se- season one, episode one, Emily and I just recorded a new intro because Ooh. we found that our season or our episode one keeps getting the highest numbers people are just scrolling all the way back and listening to episode one and we're like why it gets so <laughs> much better it. so we actually recorded a new intro to plug into that episode saying hey we appreciate you starting here but you don't have to here are lots of great episodes we interviewed Brene brown marie forleo danielle laporte our sound quality gets better. So hang with <laughs> us, you know, just stuff like that. So have you thought about maybe going back in retroactively and trying to plug some ads in or, I mean, you could do something like that for this season. Yeah. What are, Do you guys expenses. have plans for what happens either with this season or with the next season? What, what, what will be the next experiment? I think our plan is always to not have a plan until we're, we're ready. Like, I don't know how Jason feels, but like, I don't, I could see the value in going back and editing the first episode, but are we going to? I really, really doubt it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, our first episode is our most listened to. I just looked at the stats. Like, it's it's our only episode. Yeah. Over 10,000 listens, uh, at least in SoundCloud. Like, I don't know. And that's going to be fun, right? Apple's going to release some analytics for podcasters to actually know real data, which will be so exciting. What? Real Um, data? Yeah. It's going to be crazy. But yeah, I don't think we would ever go back and like, I don't know. Maybe I say that. Maybe it would be something we could think about doing because there are companies now that can go through and stitch ads on old episodes and they can pull them off, right? Like you just run them for a certain amount of time. You pay for a certain amount of listens. That's kind of a cool way to do something. If we found a great company like Acuity Scheduling, who we worked with a ton, like, yeah, why not? You know, they, they can pay for those those uh, ear balls, as we like to say. Uh, but yeah, I think I agree with Paul for s- season seven. We'll see what comes to us. We're not going to do the pledge thing again. We learned our lesson. <laughs> we got some money we need to make up in the negative uh, Invisible Office Hours account. All right. Well, Paul, I know you've got to go. So as always, it's so good catching up with you guys. Thanks for joining us on the show. Where can our listeners find more? Google Paul Jarvis for me. Yeah. Uh, Google Zook and I think you need to go to the second page and click that link so that I can get my uh, result to go up I'm trying to get Zook me to be the number one result for Zook uh, in SEO I don't know why I care I just Z-O-O-K or Z-O-O-K in Canada thank you spelling is important I was watching Seth Godin on Marie Forleo's TV and he was like just type in Seth oh And I was like, jerk. oh, my God, baller. Yeah. Baller. Right? Oh, I yeah. love that. Okay, I'm not okay. even going to try for Jason. Driving. not even going to try. Right? <laughs> oh, well, man. Thank you. thank you so much, ladies, for having us on again. 
Of course, anytime. We have gotten so much amazing feedback over the years from listeners about how our podcast has helped them start to grow and uplevel their businesses. So we want to celebrate you. Here's the boss we're celebrating this week. Hi, my name is Chris Emmer and I am being boss. I help overwhelmed entrepreneurs get their voice heard on social at Sweaty Wisdom. And this week I'm celebrating that I practiced yoga before checking my email each morning this week. It's only Tuesday, but I'm committing to next week, too. Thanks, guys. I love your podcast. If you're feeling boss and want to submit your own boss moment or win, go to www.beingboss.club slash I am being boss. All right. Big shout out to our sponsors, FreshBooks Cloud Accounting. Go to freshbooks.com slash being boss to try it for free today. And incorporate.com. Go to incorporate.com slash being boss to get your free guide, a business plan template, incorporation guide, and more. Thank you so much to our team and sponsors who make Being Boss possible. Our sound engineer and web developer, Corey Winter. Our editorial director and content manager, Caitlin Brame. Our community manager and social media director, Sharon Lukey. And our Bean counter, David Austin, with support from Braid Creative and Indie Shopography. Do the work, be boss, and we'll see you next week.